Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the PRS Podcast. I am Rabbi Sandy Zisser, founder and director of the Pluralistic Rabbinical Seminary. We can be found online at jewishpluralism.org. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss out on any of our upcoming episodes. If this is your first time that you're listening and you like what you hear, take some time, go back and listen to past episodes and subscribe as well. You won't be disappointed. Today, I'm very excited to be starting a series entitled You, Me, and a Mic. And I'm very overjoyed to have with me today, in the same room, mind you, Dr. Eric Wasser, one of our all-star educators at PRS. Eric Wasser is originally from Canada and is an avid Toronto Maple Leafs fan, which we will get into later, I'm sure. He has worked in the pulpit and Jewish, and as a Jewish educator for over 30 years. His academic background includes being a chazan, a certified mohel, and an ordained rabbi. Additionally, he holds a doctorate in Jewish education. So, Dr. Wasser, welcome. Thank you, Rabbi Zisser. Happy to be here with you and with our listeners from the PRS. Excellent, excellent. And uh, so we're just going to jump into it. So really, though, you have a lot of degrees, like like. How did you have time to do all those? Well, that's a that's a that's a fair question. Uh, you you were remiss in not mentioning uh, I received another honorary doctorate recently a few weeks ago, so we'll have to update. Oh, very nice. What was that in? Uh, music. Music. Okay. Yes. So uh, so it's it's a fine question that you ask, and uh, uh, I think part of it is just uh, being in the game for for a long time and mm-hmm. a sense of trying to grow my own skill sets. Uh, certainly in part for professional reasons, but primarily personal reasons, just wanting to, to, to grow, expand my skill sets, be able to serve the Jewish community in a number of capacities. And while I've accrued a number of degrees over a length of time, it is a length of time. So it's not like I did this all at once. It's really uh, has been a lifelong journey and uh, you know, a process of growth for me. So when you, that's, of course, I didn't think that you were simultaneously getting all those three because that would be a lot. Uh, so, you know, being a, uh, a rabbi, a cantor, right, having a doctorate. So which, which did you, I mean, you became a cantor first, correct? Right. Um, so what made you want that as a career choice? So I uh, grew up in Toronto, Canada. I was uh, studying uh pre-med at the time. And, uh, uh, you know, I looked around in the classroom and the University of Toronto is a very large class, large uh, the student body. There are probably 300 kids in each and every one of my classes. And our basic undergraduate program was calculus, physics, bio, chem, uh, et cetera, that uh, intensive science-based uh, learning. And uh, at one point, I sort of looked around the room and and said, well, I think everybody is sort of doing the same thing, and maybe my skill sets may be more unique to, to a different calling. Mm-hmm. And at that same time, I had been singing choirs for many years. Okay. As I mentioned, growing up in Toronto, where the, the Chazanim, the cantors, were, were world-renowned cantors. Course, so, yeah, so it was a huge privilege to sing in their, in their choirs, and I was exposed to Jewish music at that time and had a background in uh, instrumentals as well uh, through classical piano mm-hmm. training and, and, um, and, and violin. So uh, 
I just at one point, I think it was sort of a, just something that clicked. And also, as I like to say, the third year of organic chemistry was not my friend. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure not. Yes. <laughs> so that's fun. So it's very interesting how it's so different, like from what you were going to become to what you are, right? And and there's many rabbis that I'm sure we both know that were first lawyers, and then they be it's like, no, this is not for me. This is not how I want to serve the people, right? Right. And then they became a rabbi. Or in your case, you know, going down the path, you were almost because you were almost there, third year, like right. that, that you're mm-hmm. you're almost there. And then something, I guess, said to you, no, this isn't right, right? Right. And I, and I think that I. Uh... You know, I felt that there was maybe potentially at that point, if I'm, you know, I'm reflecting back some 30 years, et cetera, was that uh, I felt there might be something more uh, there also within the context of who I was spiritually mm-hmm. and, and, and how I could, uh, could, could assist the Jewish community. Uh, I grew up very involved in synagogues, so I was exposed to a lot of not only superstar chazanim, but also some wonderful Jewish educators and, and, and rabbis. Uh, who, who I found as a, you know, as a young person, they were incredibly inspiring. So I'm sure that that helped yeah. influence my decision. Sure. So did you, so how did your, your family, your parents deal with that? You know, going from my son, the doctor to, you know, my son, the right, cantor, right? right? So uh, <laughs> there's a joke in there somewhere. Right. For sure. Know, for sure. Know. So uh, certainly um, uh, my, my mother was thrilled that I wanted to pursue whatever uh-huh. I wanted to pursue. And uh, at that time, after I left uh, the, the University of Toronto, when I finished the University of Toronto, I went to Israel to study at Yeshiva. Mm-hmm. So so for any uh, Jewish parent, that would be a nice thing. Their kid was right, going sure, to, to Israel to study at Yeshiva. And uh, certainly uh, grew up in a uh, in a home that was also uh, involved in Jewishly. So it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't really a. Uh, you know, an issue when I decided mm-hmm. to potentially change career paths. And I think also an acknowledgement that when you're 20, 21 years old, 22 years old, you, you know, you may think you want, know what you want to do, right, but that's course. not necessarily what's sure. going to happen. So, right. but I do feel that, uh, that I was very supported by, by my family and as, as I have been throughout, throughout my, uh, my career shifts and changes. Sure. Nice. Nice. Okay. And so what was, uh, yeah. So you grew up in the shadows of many world renowned cantors. Right. We know that because of the time period, most of them that were working were world renowned, right? Because yeah. that's how they were. So what was that like? So that was amazing in a certain respect. One of the things that was nice was that, you know, these guys, when you say world renowned, chazanam, so, so it's not like they would lead services on Friday nights. God knows they never came to daily minyan sure. on Shabbat. The chazan would come in and do Musa. Mm-hmm. Rarely did the Torah service. But these yeah. people are, were really revered mm-hmm. yeah, because of their artistry. And they were amazing, amazing talents. It was always wonderful to go a number of times throughout the course of the year. There were, there were concerts. Uh, the, the, the one downside of it was the uh, Shabbat Mavarchim, when there was the <laughs> announcement of the new month. We used to have a joke that, that we remember that page of the Sidor so well because it would take the cantor 25 minutes to yes. chant through it. Yes. So that was a little brutal, but... Uh, but it was amazing just to, to hear the talent and the, the, the artistry and, mm-hmm. and, and the beauty of liturgical presentation it was inspiring. Sure. It was truly sure, sure. inspiring. And it's definitely a, a lost art. Yes, there are very few baskets of classical chazanut, very few synagogues that really value uh, that type of presentation. And that's okay in the sense that we have to acknowledge that 
times change, what the what the kahila, what the congregation needs and wants changes. Um, how we think about our relationship with prayer changes over time, and so um, so while there are still a number of synagogues, uh, they're very few and far between that really are looking for that superstar performer, right. and they're looking for somebody to be more right. integrated mm-hmm. into the community. Right, and the so when you told them that's what you were pursuing. What was their response? Do you remember anyone specifically like the response of that? So my choir director in in, in Toronto, I had told him that uh, I I'd sung with him. He he was the uh, conductor. We had about a forty five voice choir, and I had told him that I was thinking of shifting gears. He was very excited and uh, was very magnanimous in terms of giving me his time and helping me prepare some pieces for auditions when I went to New York. So. So they, they thought it was sort of fun, but uh, I think a lot of shuls, you know, when they when you have a student who goes, whether to be rabbinical mm-hmm. school or Jewish education or cantorial school, it's a nachis for the the community. Sure. So, and I would tell you also that from the uh, from the confirmation class that that I went into and participated in, again, I guess I was sixteen or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, five of our five of our classmates became either rabbis or cantors. Wow. So there was something in the yeah, air there. Some, there was yeah. something in the air. Yeah, yeah, something where you grew up in the water or something. Yeah, right. There. Yeah, yeah. That's, something in the snow. Of course, which yes. was there all the time. Yes, absolutely. Right, because did you ever see grass or was it? Over? <laughs> I can I can only tell you I can tell you in all honesty that there were times in the sukkah where yeah. it was snowing through the really? sukkah. Absolutely, wow. number of people had heaters in their sukkot. Uh, you were definitely bundled up with a scarf and that what's called a toque, a special type of Canadian hat. Uh-huh. And, uh, and and certainly it was snowing on Pesach. Wow. So anything and everything in between. Nice. That, that's totally different. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So so one of the other things that you're very well known for is being a Mohel, right? The, uh, uh, what would we translate that as a... Uh, I have a specialty in ritual circumcision. Yes, there you go. So what made you want to do that? Was that a, you woke up one morning and said, hey, this is what I want to do. Was it a childhood obsession maybe? Or So I think a, a few late years later into my career, yes. and I would go to various smachot, and I would mm-hmm. see people do breed me line. As you know, often you have two groups of people. When you go to a bris, there are two groups of people. Uh-huh. The people who stand as far towards the back as, as, as right. they can, right. and people who stand up closest. So I was one of those guys who stood up closest because I was sort of interested in seeing what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I had had this previous inclination to do something in the quote unquote medical field, right. I said to myself, well, this looks like a pretty cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I watched for a while pretty up close yeah. and and. Uh, you know, from my congregants who would call up and say, oh, we had we had a baby, so-and-so had a baby, ba-ba-ba, can you find us a mohel? And I would find them local mohalim. And yes. then one day I said, well, why can't I be the local mohel? Right, sure. And so I had the opportunity right. to go to Israel. My, my synagogue was kind enough. I, I guess I had earned it, quote unquote. Uh, I had a sabbatical from my shul mm-hmm. in Chicago, and I went to, to Israel for six months and worked basically as it was an apprenticeship type of of program and mm-hmm. I worked with the gentleman who was the chief mohel of Yerushalayim, oh, wow. and uh, it was not only the practical uh, training of how to do the mila, mm-hmm. which is of course uh, the most important part, but also because it was the training was in Israel, there was this whole other 
a learning piece, which sure. was you had to go through various codes of Jewish law mm -hmm. and compendiums that were written for Mohalim, be able to translate them, interpret what the halakha, what Jewish law would prescribe under certain situations. So it was a very, uh, it was a very holistic experience sure. also. And, right, right. Uh, so that's how, that's how I fell nice. into that nice. trap. Nice. Oh, that makes sense. Now with the medical background piece. Yeah, yeah I think it filled out a piece that was sort of like missing for yeah, me yeah, yeah. that I had al always uh, wanted to pursue. So, sure. um, so th that's how I uh, ended up doing that it. That makes sense. That yeah. makes sense now. So the you know there's a lot of myth and misconception around a bris, right, a ritual circumcision, right. So when people call up, there's usually times where they have really big concerns, right. Now, I've only been through two, my own, which I don't remember, and my son's, which I remember really well. Right. Right. So, and because I was right up there with it, you know, right, like right, I sure. was in there. My wife was the other one by the stairs. By the, the stairs, yeah. You know, and I remember the, our Mohel said, like, you can walk away, but when, by the time you get to the railing, I'll be done. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and it's done that way purposely, right? That it's, that it's, it's, it's painless, quick and done. And, and it's right. So when you were training for it, they, they also trained you how to, answer those questions or is that something you learned on the way so i think that was something that you sort of learned um more while you were in the field mm -hmm. when, when i went to israel to learn this i was really learning the procedural part and the issue about halakha the issue about the questions of jewish law pertaining yeah. to brit milah but i think that whole question of presentation how you conduct a service how you offer people the opportunity mm -hmm. to become involved and have kibbutzim have various honors that was something that I sort of worked out um, on, on my own while in practice. And uh, certainly it wasn't the case that they trained you about how to answer some of these right. questions, especially if you think about in Israel, where a bris is somewhat perfunctory, right? Sure. So people, sure. okay, my the baby's born, let's have a bris, boom, 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 done. Right. And there are very few questions that are asked because sure. most of the population is like, okay, we have to have a bris and, right. and that's it. So, uh, but it's certainly different here in the United States and certainly mm -hmm. different today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I assume that. Yeah. 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 And the, so do you have a, a bris that stands out, like the most memorable one that you've done? Either good or bad. I mean, yeah, you, sure. you don't have to I'll highlight the bad part, but like any, anything that stands out. So, so there are, first of all, I have a hundred bris stories, as I'm you can imagine. Yes, I'm uh, sure. But for the sake and, 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 and uh, peace of mind of your listeners, I'll just share with you two quick stories, uh -huh. one of which was that I did the, uh, I did Tubri Tote for a family here on the East Coast mm -hmm. who are renowned for being very wealthy, and um, they actually own some sports teams, mm -hmm. I don't want to mention, and sure enough, I was very excited to have the opportunity to interact with these people, uh -huh. and, uh, you know, the one of the person who referred them to me said to me, oh, don't worry, don't worry, Cantor Wasser, you know, this family's going to take care of you. Don't mm -hmm. say a word to them about the fee. Uh, and I said, of course not, of course not. Mm -hmm. And and sure enough, on the day of the brisk, they forgot to pay me. Oh, great. So it happens. And uh, But you got season tickets out of it. No, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great to do it. It was great yeah, to do it, yeah. to meet these wonderful people. And uh, then I, I have a funny story that I was once doing a, uh, a brisk mm -hmm. for uh, a couple and uh, there were two mothers, and one was very uh, nervous, and one was mm -hmm. more go with the flow. And I went, and I did the bris, and 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 thank God the baby w did great. And uh, you know, thirty seconds, the bris is over. 
the baby falls back asleep mm -hmm. because sure. we're giving the baby some wine. So the right. baby falls asleep and one of the mothers starts screaming. She's all excited because the baby's asleep. Okay. And I say, well, this is a good thing. The baby is being pacified right. by the right. wine and whatever. Right. You should be very happy. And literally the woman was screaming. And the other mother was, she was quiet. She was uh -huh. fine. And then sure enough, what happened is the baby wakes up from all this screaming. Yeah. The baby starts screaming. And then the other mother starts screaming because now the baby's awake and not sleeping. <laughs> oh, so yeah. I was like, hey, I can't win here. But and then uh, you left. That was it. That was it. I had no choice. <laughs> oh, boy. Yes. But it was beautiful. Yeah, you leave the room screaming. That's, That's it. That's how you're supposed to leave them, right? That's right. That's right. Comedians leave the room. Leave them laughing. You're like, leave them screaming. Leave them screaming. Leave them screaming. <laughs> but it's all, also, I will That's tell you that it's been a very fulfilling a piece of my professional life because I've been able to come in and, and make something that is an anxiety provoking situation by definition to try to make it uh, not only uh, easier to get mm -hmm. through that, but also to craft something that's meaningful and personalized for, for the family such that they can look back at this ancient Jewish ritual mm -hmm. and hopefully uh, ascribe meaning to it and, and look back upon that, 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 experience as, as being a positive experience nice yes and that's that's the important part right yeah absolutely Making comfortable with it yes yep. and so so that's really great so the of course obviously you don't do that for us right here at brs <laughs> i do not you're not a, i mean you could be our resident model, but it's not the, the what we hire you out to do right so but you are one of our educators so what's your favorite thing to teach as an educator in general or at... in general first and, so and I, I think I think I would tell you that for me the most I, I love teaching courses that I create mm -hmm. right that that I'm not just simply teaching a curriculum that somebody else has given me and yeah. said to me oh this is our packet please teach pages mm -hmm. 9 to 15 uh, I like the flexibility flexibility of creating courses and creating sort of an arc for the course. So I have a sense of where I'm beginning with students and where I want to get them mm -hmm. to at the end. And I can sort of plan that out. So, so in, in some of my work at PRS, for example, that I, um, I've been given that flexibility to create some courses, uh, the death and dying course, yes. the, which I was basically given a, you know, sort of an overall structure, mm -hmm. but then I was able to set up these 10 lectures and a whole bunch of various areas that I found mm -hmm. of interest. And um, and then uh, I also happened to teach at a, a Jewish day school, a Jewish high school. Uh -huh. And uh, and similarly, I teach uh, five courses here. And the two courses that I enjoy the most are the ones that I had the opportunity to create sure. uh, fr from the beginning. And it's not that it's not that I don't take input from other people. It's actually just the opposite that I sort of start with. Uh, a game plan, uh, I run it, and then I have the opportunity to tweak it over the course of time. So I also enjoy when I see the course develop. Sure, so it's not the same thing. Right. It's not like, you know, here it is, let's do this. Yeah. It, we're only doing A, B, and C. No, we might do D, E, and F just because in a different year we might do the next letters of the mm -hmm. alphabet. But sure. for me, I'm more most uh, excited about stuff that I create. And of course, also... The other piece of the puzzle is, is when we're doing in-person learning as opposed to, uh, you know, the online learning is, is that when when students sort of grab onto something and say, hey, you know, Dr. Wasser, what about this? And there's right. something that's in intriguing to them. Yes, yes. Then that's also a great thing mm -hmm. because 
that's very much student-centered. Amazing, yes, it's true. All right, so, so you work with both adults and adolescents. Which do you find harder to work with or more challenging, let's say? That's so funny. That's, a, that's such a funny question. I thought you were going to ask me which one I enjoy more. Okay. So okay. which one do you enjoy more? So, so I would say, you know, it's, I, I think what I really enjoy mm-hmm. is the balance of what I do because yes. I work in the pulpit, which is a more formal structure, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, in many ways geared more towards adults, even sure. though, of course, there's, you know, bar mitzvah instruction, et cetera. Right. But there's also a whole piece of adult education mm-hmm. that goes on on mm-hmm. a weekly basis. And I also, when I'm teaching at a, 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 a local Jewish high school, you know, obviously this is this is more for teenagers. And I would only say that the the balance, the, the ability to and the opportunity to do both, mm-hmm. actually, I think, uh, you know, it reinvigorates me each week because nice. I'm doing something that's a little bit different than mm-hmm. my my approach and my presentation has to be different depending sure, on the group course. with which I'm with which I'm working. But uh, I think if you would ask me, do I prefer the, the working with the high school kids or the adults? I would say for me, what works is is that combination mm-hmm. of both. Yeah. So I'm going to say that was sort of a trick question because you couldn't say one or the other. <laughs> That's okay. Without getting in trouble. Without getting in trouble somewhere, right? So, but like, so I also have the opportunity of working with both age groups. And I find that sometimes adolescents are like adults in their studying, right? And their understanding. And there are times that we, I'm sure, have both been shocked by what what adolescents figure out in the right, studies, right? Right, and then, right. And then you ask the same question to the adults and they're like, I don't know. Right, I right, know. right, what, right. What do you mean? You know? So there's, a, there's, as an educator, I see your point about it feels good. Yeah, you're reinvigorated both ways doing right, you know, and it's it's really a great combination to have. I right. think. And, and I I, uh, I I just want to piggyback on your uh, intelligent comment because I know, for example, <laughs> that uh, I teach a, a Tanakh class, mm-hmm. a, a, a scriptural based class here at the um, here at the high school, and I have a couple of students in particular when we're reading some of these narrative pieces. They're asking questions that are so deep and so far yeah. above and beyond what you would expect, mm-hmm. uh, you know, questions about eschatology and universalism. Right. And, you know, these are very, very profound mm-hmm. questions that mm-hmm. they're asking. It's, it's amazing to see. Yeah. Sometimes they, they have that insight. And, and uh, you know, there's something that when you read a text, maybe for the first or second time, it strikes you in a different way than if I'm an adult and I've read it for 40 years. Right. And I, it almost becomes perfunctory. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. these uh, this idea of, of looking at the text with new eyes and, and, and gleaning questions mm-hmm. that other people might not see. Yeah, that's true. That's great. Yeah. All right. So I have a few rapid questions for you. They're rapid questions. I don't think the answers are so rapid, but let's see what happens. Right? Okay. Okay. So you're from Canada, right? What's the obsession with Canadians and Tim Hortons? Oh, Tim Hortons, this is a great question. <laughs> the first thing we do when we cross the border is we look for the local Tim Hortons. Yeah, why? Why? Because they, they sell this thing called a butter tart. You people don't have no, it here no, in no, America. No. It's unbelievable. It melts in your mouth. It's so good. And their coffee is excellent. And Tim Horton was, of course, a famous hockey player. Yes. So what other yes. country would have a donut franchise named after a hockey player? Right, right. So every time you check into the local Tim Hortons, you feel 
like you are stamping your passport uh -huh. officially. Uh -huh. Very nice. So I'm going to let you know that, you know, we do have Tim Hortons here in, in the United States. I heard. Does it match up? Have you ever no, been to No, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go. I'm you only going to Tim Hortons in Canada. <laughs> so you've never been it's to It's part of crossing the border. Even like, like right outside the border, ah, you wouldn't do it? No, absolutely. Got to okay. be in Canada to do the Tim Hortons, but thank you very much. Interesting. That's, uh, that's impressive. Okay, so what you would say is it much like Aroma Coffee from Israel that's here? Perfect. You would never go here for that, That's right? great. That's a great, 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 great analogy. there are a few Aroma Coffee. Right, right, right. But, right. you know, it's, I guess it's the same idea because I've spoken to the people there at Aroma here in the United States, and they say if you enjoy it in the in israel don't come don't here. bother right there exactly. this is the same thing because they have to americanize their, their sure drinks, sure right? no okay so that's good to say the me. butter tart the butter tart it saves me a trip okay yes. okay good so next time you're in canada you should bring some butter tarts back i mean that's the answer okay so now we switch to hockey because you mentioned because obviously tim horton right was right. a famous hockey player so toronto maple leaves maple leaves maple leap what's that <laughs> maple leaps <laughs> maple leaps right the toronto maple leaps uh, why them and not like the Montreal Canadiens, Vancouver Canucks, or Edmund Oilers, or Ottawa Senators, or Winnipeg Jets? They have a lot of other teams in Canada. Why? We do. Well, I grew right? up in Toronto, and uh, the uh, you know when I when I came to America, people would often say to me, uh, "What did you guys do growing up in Canada? What do you do on Saturday night?" Right, right. And the answer is, hockey. We didn't do nothing. Right. What do you mean you didn't right. do nothing? You watched hockey right. night in Canada. Right. That was the national broadcast. And uh, we grew up watching uh, two games a week, uh -huh. one on Wednesday night, one on Saturday night. Big rivalry between the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Montreal Canadiens. Sure. Historically, the two of them had the most number of Stanley Cups. Yes. So uh, Toronto was where we were based. Toronto was our team twice a week. Every it. week, and it was uh, it was great. And that's that, right? That's it. There was no discussion. Right. Did you play hockey growing up? So the idea of playing hockey, so uh, we didn't play in a league because a lot of the leagues met on Shabbat morning. Sure. Sure. So uh, we would get guys together, and back in those days, you would rent an outdoor rink. Uh -huh. And to rent the outdoor rink, I'm pretty sure the cost was $24 for uh -huh. the hour. Okay. But the issue was you could only get the ice – Right at about uh, three thirty in the morning on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so sure enough, you you get, get dressed in your hockey gear at two right. a.m., go to the rink, play, come back home. You'd be home at five thirty or whatever the right. case was. It everybody threw in two bucks, and uh, that's where we played Amazing. hockey. Amazing, and those are probably. Pretty good memories. Those huh? are great. Those yes. are great. Good yes. times. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. So, but you now currently live in New Jersey. Correct. Which is here in the United States. It is. But you're still a Toronto Maple Leafs. Sure, right? sure, so, sure, so sure. New Jersey Devils, not at all? No, 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 no. One and only. One and only. So you actually have time to, to go to the games here and watch the Maple Leafs? I, I no. think the last time I saw a game was probably four or five years oh, ago. that's too bad. But that's okay. That's, that's okay. Busy with other things, other good things. Understood. That's yes. awesome. Um, okay, so one final question for you. So what's the most Canadian thing you still do? What's the most Canadian thing <laughs> yeah, I still because do? Why do I, why do I say it that way? Because, you know, there's there's this idea that Canadians are like super nice, right? right? Or like polite or things like that, which are very stereotypical, but maybe sure. maybe true, right? But I'm sure there are things that you have you have 
embraced here in the United States as American, right? right. But also still carry over the, the Canadian something, right? So I'm not sure what a good answer to that is and an appropriate <laughs> answer because I can't say drinking beer, no, which no, was no. a big uh, which was a big thing in Canada. Right. But, Although you just said that. That's something else. But I know I didn't say it. I just referenced <laughs> that I wasn't going to say it. Right, sure. But uh, I think that, uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned the stereotype of Canadians being polite. Yes. And I remember one time I was... I was driving over one of the bridges in New York. I was listening to sports radio. Mm -hmm. They happened to be talking about hockey. Yes. And the uh, the moderators clearly didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> so I called in while I'm driving over the bridge. Mm -hmm. And I explained my position about what they were discussing. <laughs> and uh, the guy said to me, oh, you, you know, I think this is a very good point. And he asked me, you wouldn't happen to be from Canada, are you? And I said, yes, in fact, I am. He said, I knew it because you were so polite on the phone. Oh, <laughs> so there you go. Hopefully, hopefully one of the Canadian things I do is, is, is uh, hopefully I comport myself with a degree of, uh, of politeness. Okay, very good. But you would expect that from most people, right? Like, sure. So it's not really, I mean, yes, maybe possibly Canadians are super nice, which is not a bad thing to not be, a bad right? thing. But I guess for New Yorkers specifically, it's... Unusual. It's unusual. Right. It's unusual. But God bless the New Yorkers. God bless America. <laughs> God bless Canada. There you go. There you go. Excellent. So um, anything else you'd like to say to our listeners out there as we leave? Sure. So first of all, thank you for the time and listening to our podcast. We're very excited about what's going on at PRS. I remember meeting with Rabbi Zisser when this idea was somewhat in its infancy and just being amazed at the... Uh, at, at the growth and to see this project come to fruition, uh, it was a number of months ago, was the first uh, ordination, ordination ceremony, yes, yes. which was like amazing. Mm -hmm. I think PRS is doing great stuff. The whole concept of online learning and, and listening to the, the, the quality of, of, of the students and seeing all the offerings that the mm -hmm. PRS has is just uh, really inspiring. And Yagdil Torah, Yadir, that mm -hmm. we should continue yeah. to grow in Torah and praise God. Amazing. Amen. So, of course, you know, the I did say our last question, but obviously we now have another one that came up. So you were actually at our ordination that yes. we had. And you had a unique position because you were on the Beitin for it, right? And uh, one of the things that folks who are listening to us should know that, as we've said before in previous podcasts, we're not just pluralistic in name. Right? We are in position and who we are that way. Uh, what was it like sitting on the Beit Dean with people who would, in your mind, never sit down together, right? Because we had, you know, ultra-Orthodox right. rabbi on the board, and we had, like, an ultra-liberal rabbi on the board, you know. Like, how did that feel? So it feels like the fulfillment of what should be Achdut Yisrael, of mm -hmm. the unity of the people of, of Israel, uh, yes, we all have our own identities, but I think that the the way that the Jewish community and religious communities in general have developed is almost to a state of post-denominationalism, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and that what is more important than any label is the idea of, uh, of, of being respectful to people with other opinions, sharing ideas. Uh, I don't have to practice how you practice, you don't have to practice how I do, but to engage in a conversation... Mm -hmm only allows us to to really um, to to grow as people and in in, in fact there's a there's in the uh, in Mesechet Brachot there's a, a sogia that says that when you see people 
uh, from diverse backgrounds, there's an opportunity to say a special blessing that yes. acknowledges that God sees people and for what their wisdom mm -hmm. is and their secrets, etc. So, so I thought it was a great fulfillment of of this post-denominational mm -hmm. construct, which is where the religious world will end up one day in Eventually, hopefully. Exactly. Right. So, yes. So, I agree with everything you just said. Because it was, it was from, from my point of view, it was amazing too. And just so for those listening in, this is usually how our conversations go. We end and then we continue. Sure. Right? So, that's, and that, and that also is, is a, a light into how we educate people. Right? You finish and then you continue, right? So it's never ending. That's beautiful. So if, if we were actually sitting here longer, we would continue talking for the next X amount of hours, but I'm sure we all have to go back to work sometimes. So we're going to do that. So uh, Dr. Wasser, thank you so much for joining us today. Rabbi Zisser, it's a pleasure as always to interact with you and our PRS family. Yes. And uh, for those of you who are listening, if you have not subscribed yet, please do so. It'll get you into all of our past episodes and future ones to come. Uh, if you'd like to find the Pluralistic Rabbinical Seminary online, you could find us at jewishpluralism.org. Uh, if you like what you see there, you can try out a class. You can join our community, Beit Midrash. It's a one-time fee for the classes that we offer there. If you want to take the step and explore the seminary itself, you can hit the contact button there, you'll be directed toward me and I will get back to you as soon as possible, which is usually very soon after you send it in. So, uh, because that's how we work. And for those of you who are repeat podcasters, we appreciate you. We love to hear your comments and suggestions. You can put them into the comment section of the podcast or you can email them over to us as well. And we'd love to hear from you. Again, it's jewishpluralism.org, the Pluralistic Rabbinical Seminary. I am Rabbi Sandy Zisser, and we will see you next time.